0: We're all here, and that's what matters. Um, so, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'm David Zilber, and on behalf of my co organizers, uh, Elisa Caffrey and Justin Sonnenberg, I want to welcome you to the Fermentation and Health Speaker Series from the Center for Human Microbiome Studies at Stanford University School of Medicine. Uh, last presentation uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, with Dr. Joshua Evans. Um, We had a great conversation with him about the use of fermentation as a way to explore relationships uh, in the case uh, that he presented between sustainability, culture, and flavor. Fermentation research is still in its infancy and that's why we're doing this series. And to explore these relationships, we still need to understand the basics. What microbes are present and involved in the processes of fermentation? What are they doing in there? And how are they interacting with each other? We also need to recognize current limitations in scientific technology, for example, while we might want to quantify certain compounds associated with taste and flavor of bread foods, the ways in which we do this um, can combine taste with texture, temperature, and emotion, uh, leading to perceived flavor that can't be quantified with a scientific instrument. But nonetheless, we require the collaboration of chefs and scientists from many fields to be able to do any of this. Like most things, understanding the relationship between sustainability, culture, and flavor requires practice. And the best way to learn about fermentation. To gain experience by listening to microbes, developing an intuition for what will be a success and what might not, all while keeping up with the regulatory landscape and changing consumer tastes. But before introducing our next speaker, a little housekeeping. This series will be recorded and posted in the next few days as both a video and audio. Feel free to write in the questions as we go, upvote your questions that you like, and we'll do our best to get to them. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions ahead of time. And now I'd like to introduce our speaker, Alex Hobson. Alex has been fermenting since 1996 with her husband, Kevin Farley. Over, the mo- over almost 17 years of fermentation practice, she has experimented fermenting a bit of everything from watermelon rind, kasuzuke, to natto miso, along with a constant rotation of sauerkrauts and kombuchas that you can find at their shop, their famous, famous shop, the cultured pickle shop in Berkeley. With her fermentation experience, have al- has also come years of navigating the regulatory landscape and observing changes in consumer perception and marketing of fermented foods. So it is a great pleasure to have you here, Alex. Um, I've never been to your shop, but next time I'm in Berkeley, uh, visiting my uh, my like college days ex girlfriend and saying hi to her, I will also come by and get a bowl of rice and pickles. In uh, a long overdue visit to your. Mecca of fermented foods. So please take it away. We're so happy to have you here.
1: Thanks so much, David. Uh, I hope you do come. Um, So I would say that probably the most, one of the most common questions we get from customers is how we began um, our interest in in this business. And pretty much like most questions I get asked um, regarding this business, I don't really have a super neat and tidy answer for you. But I would say that uh, really the beginnings for me started when I was 18 years old and adopted a vegan diet, and I had zero idea about how to feed myself. So it became um, sort of a lifelong exploration into that question, and I navigated through various alternative diets throughout the years. And um, at about the age 20, about age 23 in 1994. Um, That's when I met Kevin, and we adopted a macrobiotic diet. And macrobiotic diets, um, they rely heavily on traditional Japanese fermented foods, and we soon um, became very enchanted with miso, Um, both, I think, because of sort of the hypnotic beauty of watching the swirls of miso um, in your bowl of miso soup. And we eventually married ourselves one evening over a bowl of miso. And so we, um, we decided we were gonna learn how to make this rather magical food. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of information at that point in the mid nineties, there was no internet, um, but we armed ourselves initially um, with this book, the book of miso that we found at a, a used bookstore. And somewhere in the back of this book in the appendix, we found the address of a business called gem cultures and very serendipitously we happened to be living quite quite close to gem cultures in port bragg california and so one day we hitchhiked out to the coast and we showed up on the doorstep of betty and gordon mcbride who were pioneers in the field and in their kitchen laboratory they both imported um, koji making spores from japan and cultivated a huge range of cultures, everything from kombucha to sourdough to more obscure um, Scandinavian dairy cultures. Um, we were totally enthralled um, and they sent us home with an envelope. They sent us home with an envelope of Koji making spores, um, But home at that point, and I'm going to show our first picture This was home, Um, that is the view from the tent we were living in um, on a small organic farm in Northern Mendocino County off the grid. Um, So the conditions at that point for fermentation were rather rustic. Um, Our first incubator was a sleeping bag on the side of a sunny hill. And um, so we kind of took it from there and, and we definitely learned Um, how to be resourceful, how to be resourceful without a lot of fancy equipment, which I think is one of the best, um, the best gifts that starting this way um, has, has given us. Um, I think that in this business, um, being able to sort of observe to what you're, observe what you're seeing and, and respond with the knowledge that you have is, is the best, um, the best skill that you have. And I also think that the That So many of these processes which arose out of a very intimate relationship between human and plant and microbe um, that evolved in more agricultural settings, um, I think starting in this way really um, was was great. Um, The goal was never to start a business, really it became more of a hobby. And we were exploring, possibly traveling to Japan to study miso making. Um, but we had a child instead and we moved back down to Berkeley where I had gone to school. Um, and it was really in pregnancy that I, um, discovered lactic acid fermentation. It's fairly cliche, but I did crave sour and I did feel fairly ill. Um, and so, uh, I think the other, the other sort of large influential book we had was, was this book called Healing with Whole Foods by Paul Pitchford. And somewhere in the back, there was a recipe for raw sauerkraut, um, which I'm sure our first couple batches turned out quite horribly. Um, But eventually, you know, we got some basics down and our son was born in 1996 Um, and we were broke and Kevin was in a rather dead end job. And I tend to have a hard time sitting still So I was trying to find something that I could put the baby in the backpack and um, better our situation. So we, at that point, we built a greenhouse in our backyard. We started growing sprouts and wheatgrass and microgreens. Um, We rented space by the hour at a community kitchen. And at night we would go and we would pound and we would shred and then we would pack everything into five gallon crops and we couldn't store anything there. So we would haul it back to our tiny apartment and um, all available floor space was taken up with pallets that were loaded down with five gallon crocks, and all available wall space was um, steel shelving that had more five gallon crocks. And there were old refrigerators that were used as incubators and um, And that's how we began, really. Um, We really couldn't have started this business, I'd say anywhere else. Um, There was a fairly niche audience um, that uh, became fans of what we did. Um, Mostly, I'd say people that were more in the raw foodist community. Um, See. So we started uh, selling sprouts at farmer's markets. Um, we, uh, started doing some small batches of sauerkraut and, um, that was really our, our first jar looked like that. Um, in 1999, we started sharing kitchen space with a catering company. Um, and then due to the rather sort of quick turnaround time of sauerkraut and a higher customer demand. Um, for that, then we so we decided that that was going to be, um, our main product. So the biggest leap the business really ever took was in 2006. Um, we leased our own space, um, which is what this is a, a picture of in the early days. Um, and we built out a kitchen. Um, there was a front door to the sidewalk. So there was the possibility of doing direct retail. Um, But in order to pay for the space, um, we needed to make a lot of kraut. And so we started, I'd say at that point, we were producing about 2,000 pounds a week. So at any given time, there was about 10,000 pounds in production. It was around the time when Whole Foods was opening stores left and right in the Bay area. And we were, I think, one of two, um, companies on the shelf. And so things went along pretty well. Um, but we could sort of see where the market was heading. Um, my understanding of the growing awareness in the importance of probiotic foods was through the fact that stores were ordering a lot. Um, but eventually the, market oh here's a this is a our our fermentation room um, that was lined with uh about 30 gallons stainless steel wine fermenting tanks from above we did eight five flav- eight flavors of sauerkraut at that point um but really within a few years the shelves of supermarkets started looking like this um and so we understood um, that we needed to start to transition into a, a different kind of business um, that that really would be more sustainable for our future, but really more genuinely reflect who, who we are. Um, the great thing about having a space of one's own is that it allows for the freedom of experimentation. Um, so. As far as the lactic acid fermentation that the shop produced, um, we really wanted that to reflect the amazing year-round diversity of, um, of agricultural um, bounty that this region produces. Um, so just a few pictures of some various different um, vegetables that we work with, uh, a pumpkin, some cauliflower, some watermelon rind, some carrots and seaweed, some saltus. Um, So, and and what we produce will will change throughout the season. The krauts we still do, um, but less of them. Um, and at any given time, we'll have dozens of different specialty lactic acid ferments: a uh, beet green kimchi, a romaine. Um, one of the really very fortunate um, parts about our new shop is that we are literally right down the street from Takara Sake, um, which is one of the country's largest sake producers. So right away, we wanted to do a deeper dive into some more traditional Japanese pickling techniques. Um, one of those being kazusuke, in which we're utilizing the lees or the, the solids that are filtered out during sake making um, as a fermentation medium. Um, so a rather lovely picture of turnips and pumpkin. Um, we started doing more rice bran pickling, um, some drying, which um, in which uh, we're air drying the vegetables first. Also some daikon. Um, a lot more with umeboshi plums um, that we've gotten much better at over the years. Um, And we revived our uh, miso-making program in sort of smaller batch, younger misos. Um, I had brewed kombucha off and on over the years, but mostly at home. And I decided to bring that down to the shop. And that's really the, the main beverage that the shop produces. Kombucha, for some reason, more than any other ferment, I feel like has this very rigid orthodoxy that has grown up around it um, in which you can only sort of brew on certain teas and with certain sugars. Um, And so I very much um, rebel against that. And I really enjoy growing my scobies on a variety of herbal teas. We also utilize a lot of vegetable juices um, in the secondary um, fermentation of the kombucha. Um, (laughs) And what we found was that, in as the, as our as our retail fridge really started to look more full and diverse and interesting, um, and that at at the same time as people really wanted to add more fermented foods into their diet, we found that a lot of people would stand in front of the fridge or you know at farmers markets, and they would be a little bewildered. And one of the most common questions was, "What do I do with this?" And so we. Um, both in a way to try to bring more people into the shop and provide some context for what it is we do. In 2016, we started serving lunch. Um, And we came up with the idea of um, doing what we called rice and pickles. Uh, I love sort of the beautiful simplicity of it in that so many traditional diets really rely on a staple grain uh, with some fermented condiments. Um, But the concept was, broad enough um, that we can sort of showcase the breadth of the work um, that we do and that we've been working on for decades. Um, So the components of the bowls will vary from things that are hours old, say some tomatoes pickled in koji, um, or some amazake that's produced out of the leftover rice um, from lunch and then converted into a sweet porridge for dessert. Uh, to things that are you know, several years old, such as this kazuzuke watermelon rind. Um, one of the other really wonderful things about rice and pickles is it allows the shop to operate less as sort of a linear production line and more as a whole kitchen ecosystem. So for instance, um, various components of our production are recycled into other components of the bowls So this were some carrot peels that were dried and then simmered in a white miso last week. Um, We'll take various pulps from juicing and we'll turn them into dashis, we'll turn them into spice blends. Um, So we're able to walk people through their meal, um, through their bowls using kind of this lens of fermentation in which everything is always in the process of becoming something else.
2: <clears throat>
1: so last year we um, completely ended all of our all of our wholesale operations. Um, so that transition really took um, it took several years. Um, it, it took thirty years completely, but it, it took several years um, since we decided that's what was the goal. Um, and now we sell only direct to customers who come here to the shop. And the range of customers we have, um, it's amazing. It's one of the most unique and special aspects about this business. We have everything from people who were sent here by their gastroenterologists to chefs and craftspeople from around the world. Um, and i the reason I think that's so special and unique is that those worlds used to be very separate, um, and I think and I think that, um, that they really don't need to be. Um, I think that when we speak about fermentation and health, um, like so much of nutritional science, um, that the conversation is very reductive, that, that X probiotic can be used to treat X symptom. Um, and, I, and I understand the usefulness of that, but I also think that we're working towards something larger and more long-lasting. Um, I think that when we consume ecosystems to feed the ecosystems that live within us, um, that over time we become more resilient to the various stressors that we face. Um, and when the food that feeds us is really delicious in a in a deeply nourishing way, um, that it becomes not just the food that we're supposed to eat, but the food that we really crave on a deeper whole body level. Um, And when our brain and our gut are clearly communicating, then I think we just make better food choices. So I think initially a lot of people come here because they're told to come here, but over time, I think that they start coming back out of a more internal motivation. Um, I see that all the time. And I think that that really is how I understand um, the, the activism that's inherent in what we do. Um, and I'm happy to discuss any of that with you further.
0: That was, that was great. That was a fantastic, um, it could be a movie.
1: <laughs> There's a lot there.
0: The little, the little culture shop on the prairie or in the mountains, I take it, um, <laughs> that wound up uh, on Main Street in Berkeley. Um, that was so amazing. I didn't know all of that back history. Um, <clears throat> so great to learn about that. And, and also to, uh, you know, I, I just had a kid myself and to learn that like your kid was kind of like the catalyst for, for all of this coming about is, is also so beautiful. Um, very, very cool. Um, i'd I'd love to kind of uh dig into some of some of the the last uh portion of what you started talking about in in relation to health especially um when you mentioned that some of your clients are actually sent to your shop by their doctors um can you can you expand on that a little bit and and talk about what people come in looking for um and, and if they're like even bringing in prescriptions for, for, for meal changes and if nutritionists get involved and and, and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, the, you know, we've always been, it used to be maybe more that people's acupuncturists or their herbalists or we're, we sending them to us, but really that's not the case anymore. I mean, we get, um, you know, doctors from Kaiser are sending their patients to us. So the, the mainstreaming and just the, is, is it's, it's evolving so quickly. Um, And even, you know, people used to sort of think that they would, they would take their, their, their lab grown probiotics in addition to um, their fermented foods. But I've had people more recently, whose doctors have told them that really a lot of the probiotics they're taking were causing more harm than good, and that they should really be focusing on diversifying their diets. Um, so I I see that I see that all the time.
0: Very cool. Um, and speaking of that, uh, you you also there it was a while ago. It might have even been like a year ago. I posted like a, a an Instagram reel of myself making pepperoncino in my lab here, um, and in in the description, you know, I wrote, you know, it's like cooking the pepperoncino is a super important step. You can't just like raw pickle chilies; it's not the right flavor. Like this is this is how Italians have done it for for ages, and this is how I'm teaching you to do it. This is how I learned how to do it when I was 18. So please, like, blanch and pasteurize. You know, and sometimes your microbes have to die for your food to live. And you commented that that's something um, that your your clientele, or maybe the more militant among your clientele, or, or the clientele that get kind of maybe blindsided or caught up in this idea that you know the, the probiotic aspect of these foods is the most important part. Um, and and you said that uh, you know that's that's kind of like a line of messaging that you would use in your work to to kind of combat. These misconceptions. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Um. So, I mean, the the probiotic content of what we do is so you know it's integral to the process. But again, I think that the the sort of the over the over clinging to that, you know, becomes sort of part of this reductive paradigm where I'm you know eating X food to get X thing. Um, when you really make probiotics just uh, one of your basic food groups, then I think that whether or not you happened to cook a particular thing is is fairly irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know a lot of a lot of customers will, you know right away be like, "Oh, but you know, could I cook that? You know, I wouldn't want to you know I wouldn't want to destroy that. And it's like, well, okay, that's you know, that's that's up to you. but but really, you know everything here is living and dying all the time both in this product and, and, and within you. And if, if you just sort of think of them more as just one of your basic foodstuffs, instead of X dose of X thing taken for X amount of time, then I think you start to let go, um, of some of that, that sort of overly precious quality. Um, I totally did pepperoncini raw. I had no idea that you were supposed to cook them, Um, but I thought they tasted great.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's, that's just what I've learned is that, you know, it's like the the blanching step and it's, it's like, I think it's like an Italian Nona thing. Like it's meant to go in the cellar, uh-huh. cook it, blanch it like with the tomatoes and then keep yeah. it on your walls. I, I was, I was taught by like a Sicilian chef. So that's, that's, yeah. but Hey, we're not, we're not being militant about anything. here. That's the. No, point.
1: no. I just, you know, I like to try things out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Great. Um, Alisa, Justin, do you guys have any any uh, questions off the top of your jump? Um Go
3: ahead, Alisa, if you want to go first. Oh, I,
2: I um, well. Okay. I was, yeah, I was really interested in also the, um, as you've kind of built your practice, the, regula- the regulatory landscape um, and how that's changed in terms of, Um, You know, like your your readout what you're interested in is flavor and just making something that's good, where you have, you know, regulators that are interested in how much E. coli is currently present in the food. Um, And so just kind of how you've navigated that and how that's changed over time and also where you see it going, Um, where, how have uh, rules and regulations changed and what are movements that you've seen in terms of um, the the way in which you can actually start producing and continue to produce and sell your food?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is the only food business I've ever had, so I can't really compare it to to any other food business. Um, but really, and I think there is sort of a initial um, just idea that that the regulations regarding fermented foods must be so much more difficult than other food businesses. I haven't found that to be true. Um, I mean, first of all, you are there's depending on where you are, um, you're gonna be diff- dealing with different types of bureaucracies. There's no one overarching bureaucracy that everyone's going to deal with. You're gonna deal with your local health department and depending on the level of which you sell, perhaps your state health department as well. Um, but really, I mean, everything that we do, it it is radically safe. You know, you are dealing with um, with a very low pH and a fairly high salinity and even within those health departments with even in those within the regulations there are particular regulations that pertain to what are called non-phf foods or non-potentially hazardous foods which are foods that are below a ph of 4.1 and so you know i speak that language that is the language of of most of the um the health inspectors that will come into my shop and so we can speak on a level um that everyone understands. It's not that I care about flavor and you care about e. coli. like we can we can speak in a way that that we both understand and and in general, um, you know, it, it's it can be different depending on a particular inspector on a different day. But I can't say that I've ever had any hurdle that was, you know, totally um unrealistic. Um, one of the greatest things about, are um, sort of contraction and are deciding to to pull out of the wholesale market and sell direct retail, um, is that really at this point, I only deal with our local health department. Um, the um, licenses that you have to have are going to um, really be decided by the level at which you sell your product. Um, I've found really that the most effort and expense as far as bureaucracies have been with my organic certification um really more than 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 any health department um but again it's so dependent on on where you are specifically um then that i can only speak you know from from my own experience here which in general has been um you know challenging but not impossible yeah awesome have maybe,
3: you oh please go ahead dude
0: just just to, to continue this line of thought um have you have you ever and because this happened to me uh, when in my time at Noma, um, that you know in certain instances, it almost felt like I was teaching the health department about the safety of some of these foods as they um as they were coming to do the inspections. like they're like, okay, your fridges are good. We get that. All right. everything in the dry storage looks proper. But what's this mold? Like this doesn't have a low pH right now. How can you prove that this is safe? like, and they didn't have the capacity to check that my systems were were good have, have you encountered situations like that when you when you go into novel fermentation or outside of just pickles
1: um yeah there's been some education um but i feel like in so many ways inspectors that come in you know they they sort of pick a particular thing and then they want to spend hours on this particular product um and you know, since the the sauerkraut was the product that we produced in in the volume in sort of a volume way, that was really what we tended to focus on. And it's it's very easy to um, to communicate that that's a, a radically safe process. Um, you know, some of the smaller batch things we do, you know, they're, you know, not the most obvious things in the shop. And so they tend to not draw a whole lot of attention. Um, but but really I've found um, and you know, I mean, health departments, especially at this point, are are so overwhelmed that, you know, I don't get a lot of people in here. And in general, if you, you know, fill out what you're supposed to fill out and pay what you're supposed to pay and keep logs like you're supposed to keep logs and keep your place like clean and are respectful. And, you know, like it, it generally is is pretty okay. Um, I, I feel like it's, it's one of the questions that people who start businesses, um, you know, are want to talk to me about. Um, but it's, it's certainly not a, I don't think it's, it's any more of a hurdle in this business than any other food business.
3: Maybe related to this, but maybe <clears throat> delving back into kind of food and flavor and, um maybe away from safety a little bit the um you know it strikes me um alex i think at one point you said that you love to rebel against orthodoxy and fermentation which i i loved and um i think between you and david we may have uh, two of the most um kind of uh, most experienced people maybe on the planet in delving into new areas of, of fermentation and so um i would love to hear just a little bit about successes, failures, what, whether you've run into boundaries, you know, for, for, I, I ferment at home, but I find it very, you know, um, easy to set up something that's repeatable and I I can get caught in the trap of just like doing the same thing over and over again, maybe some ways to kind of break out of, of what you're doing at home and try new things. But yeah, I would just love to hear some great stories about, um, cool things or, or failures in, in these different experiments.
1: Um, yeah, I mean failure, like if, if you can't deal with failure, you're just in the wrong line of work. Um it's but you know, I tend to think of it as like a very good lesson in detachment on a on a daily basis. Um, but even with things that I do over and over again, I mean that's the that's sort of the um the the such a tricky the tricky thing about this you can you can do the same thing over and over again and it can seem as simple as possible but you can do it one day and it's textbook perfect and you can do it the next day and like what the hell like just happened there um so I never I never necessarily sometimes I think that the most simple things are the most challenging because you know you're you're dealing with like a very few ingredients and using one process um and so it really has to highlight like your skill and the ingredients that went into it, um, you know. But as far as um, I mean, we're just so there's just so much to work with. I mean the the amount of um, of the different plant diversity out there is just like I'm I'm just constantly inspired with what we're able to do. Um, I mean, in general. One of my rules of 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 thumb, as far as things in sort of the lactic acid fermentation world, are you know if it's pretty enjoyable to eat raw, then it's going to be pretty enjoyable to to use as a pickle. Um, so, um, one of the things I've been do I make a lot of various kimchi. I've been I've been doing doing them out of lettuces quite a lot, um, which most people are like, what you know, like that's gonna that's gonna turn totally mushy. Um, but really it doesn't, if you're using the right salinity and the right temperature, you can get just a lot of, um, really beautiful textures going on in there. Um, that's what's, uh, you know, kind of in my head at the moment. I mean, I think that the, the lunches have given us such a great platform to, um, When I sell something as a product, then I need to feel very confident that it's going to stay in a jar in your fridge and not change very much over time for several months, because that's what people sort of expect. Um, When we do the lunches, I feel like we're able to, say, use a lot of the mediums that, that that are produced in the shop and the byproducts that are produced in the shop and use them to create various quick pickles, um, you know, that are really lovely for say a couple days, but then are gonna sort of go downhill. Um, they really allow us to um, sort of use our creativity in a way that that um, is a little less static than like some of the longer term pickles that we do. Um, I have a lot of fun doing the desserts for rice and pickles. Um, most people tend to not include a lot of um, vegetables and ferments and desserts, but I think they work really beautifully, especially with a sweetener like amazake, which has so much complexity and depth to it. Um,
3: when, when you go into like a new substrate, like a new vegetable or something, are you back slopping or using starter culture or do you just kind of take- Oh, I chances? hate that word. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I understand that, you know, I know it's generally something I don't I don't. Um, I think that,, um, at, at least in lactic acid fermentation, backslopping slopping often,, um, it often goes along with a sense of fear., um, you know, that that what I'm doing is is not good enough and I should take some of this thing from a previous incarnation. Um, and, um, that's just not true um you are taking a certain ingredient and you're providing the conditions for um for the proliferation of the type of microbes that you want um to to um to transform that vegetable and you can do that i mean that's that's that happens um there's no need to sort of have this um this kind of oh it's just not going to be enough um, and so i always start i start new every every time yeah it
0: i i'll just chime in but it's also um just from my own research uh if you, if you do backslop using you know the, the previous brine of a lactic acid ferment you end up with a super screwy ferment the next time because mm. you haven't allowed the community progression to take place mm. because there is this unfolding you'll have lucana stock at the, at the beginning and then you'll have Planterum at the end and you won't get the same flavors and you'll usually end up with like a very one note, very sharp ferment mm-hmm. instead of the complexity because yeah. whoever was supposed to come late to the party was there from the start and just like shoved
3: out everyone else. Totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah, we
1: will use brines to make say quick pickles for rice and pickles. Yes. So I am able to use them in that way. Um, but I think that's totally true, David, that the, the, the natural progression, you're just not allowing that process to unfold.
0: Yeah. Um, We'll go into the Q&A. Rajan Singh, uh, great insights, learning so much from this platform. Thanks a lot. A quick question. What next or next generation probiotics for personal use medicine, I suppose, maybe are are on the horizon? Maybe there's some fermented foods that's made unique for someone uh, to improve their health. Um, And I think maybe what Rajan is asking is, are you seeing people come in asking for specific things and are you kind of changing your habits to be like, okay, yeah, yogurt in, in this, or maybe villi or fermented grains or, or something with an alkali ferment, or are, are you kind of catering to what the public is asking for in, 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 this way?
1: Yeah. I mean, the public usually is asking for a lot of, a lot of people that come here for the first time. It's like a, what do I do? What do I get? What's the best? and and i i tend to not sort of um cater to that that question um I say that if you, you know, want to create a um, a diverse ecosystem within yourself, then you're gonna really want to include a wide variety of, of probiotics. So, um, so both lactic acid ferments that are old and young um, and along with um, kombucha and along with miso and along with yogurt um, and along with a variety, um, as much as you can find. And then to include as many different high fiber plant foods to feed those probiotics in your system. And eventually, you know, if you feed them, like they, they will stay. Um, so it really is more of a whole sort of lifestyle rather than a prescription of one thing over another thing.
2: Um, do you have any uh, customers that only eat your ferments?
1: Um, I uh as opposed to other companies or their own yeah, or- like
2: they come in and they're saying like you're the only you're the only place where I buy my fermented foods and I um,
1: yeah I mean I think that um I mean I, I definitely I definitely get a lot of customers who will say like you know I don't like kombucha or I don't like sauerkraut or I don't like this or that. Um and I try to sort of communicate that, like, that it's not just because you've had a, you know, a certain product like that is not the end all be all of that product. Um, that especially in this world in which that I think does not take well to mass production. Um, that a lot of what is out there on a larger commercial level, and there's so much now, I don't really keep track at all. Um, you know, it's 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 truthfully, it's not very good, um, and I think that is because um, of you know that there that just like the the scale is important, and um, and so and then because it's not very good, I feel like it's you know overhyped and over marketed to save your life, and so that's why people you know will consume it but when they come to us and they and they start to you know eat the food that we produce here it is sort of a revelation of like you know oh my god like this is great and and that's i think where sort of the you know the ideally sort of the what will eventually just get them to to eat better over time not because it's good for them Um, but because, you know, it's the food that they really want.
2: Yeah, totally. Maybe Justin, you can also touch on, um, kind of the differences between what we're seeing in the grocery store in terms of probiotics. Um, and yeah, and I know like there's a lot of addition of probiotics at the end after pasteurizing, et cetera.
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, we've, um. You know, we we ran a study a few years ago where a um, group of people we just asked them to eat as much fermented foods as possible. They could make them themselves, but most of them got them at the grocery store. And our guidance was basically to um, you know buy foods in the refrigerated section, make sure that they've you know haven't added just acetic acid to them that they actually have been fermented and contain live microbes we documented certain products in the lab that they actually had live microbes and it was pretty straightforward like the you know i think we ran the study in 2017 18 something like that and um and we're we're redoing the study now but in a different cohort and it's become way more complex i mean there's just um so many companies out there, you can tell are playing off of the popularity of fermented foods and, um, you know, creating brined foods that then they add, you know, uh, a spore forming bacteria to that's kind of shelf stable or will, will survive a long time and say contains live microbes, you know, and, you know, pick, get these pickles, you know, probiotic. And, um, and, and there's just a wide variety of, of foods like that kombuchas that have probably been you know made as kombuchas but then pasteurized and then again like microbes added back to them and um and and so we're trying to to go through and figure out what foods actually have live microbes which ones have actually been fermented but the the marketplace has become a lot more complex to navigate and um yeah I don't know if you have any any comment or guidance on um how a, a consumer out there that doesn't have access to a you know a, a shop like yours how, how to get good quality fermented foods from a, a store
1: um they should just make them <laughs> I, mean, I mean it's it's just um it, it's just it, it's predictable you know when a food is just becomes trendy that like the large players involved are going to um, you know, sort of move in and everything's gonna sort of shift to the lowest common denominator um, and and you see it, you see it happening. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that there's small businesses that are that are doing, um, you know, probably farmers markets, you're gonna start having, you know, you, you're gonna have smaller producers um, doing things in a way that just have more integrity. Um, but even like the small businesses, you know, that are being sold at supermarkets, like those are being bought by larger businesses. And so, um, you know, I, I do see like you're entering into this world where now things are going to be labeled as postbiotic, um, you know, and it's just, um, you know, and it's it, it sort of then again feeds into this reductionist paradigm where, um, you know, you're just consuming chemical processes instead of actually consuming systems in and of themselves. Um, so I think either you're gonna find a small producer or you're just gonna, you know, start to take up some space on your countertop. Um yeah. and and it will it will uh it will hook you in.
3: But totally. And and just to to chime in there, because I think if you haven't fermented anything and you look at somebody like you who's dedicated their life to fermentation, it's hard to kind of imagine what the how to bridge that gap. And I will say that if you do, you know, take a Saturday afternoon or something and do uh, your first fermentation, like it can become something that you don't even have to think about so rapidly. Like just from somebody who's gone through this with different types of ferments, it like can just become something that is part of your your, you know, daily or weekly habit, um, you know, getting ferments going and, and, you know, very low kind of activation energy once you're all set up and you've gone through it. It's kind, of, it's kind of like running an experiment in the lab. The first time you run a new experiment, it's like totally overwhelming. You mess up a ton of stuff. And then the second time you do it and from then on, it's it's pretty easy. And um, yeah, so anyway, I don't know if you guys have tips. Actually, there was a question in the Q&A and, Q and just about um, uh, weights for holding veggies down. If you have any tips for not having veggies float to the top of brines and get moldy. I know with my, I just made kimchi and the top of it, I did it in a hurry. And I, you know, wasn't, I didn't have, I forgot to keep the full cabbage leaves to kind of like press down the top. And so the top got kind of moldy. I just scooped it off. It was all kind of like, you know, green light mold. Um, and it was fine as far as I know. Um, but if you have any tips along those lines, both in terms of like getting started, but also maybe specifically about weights, I'd love to hear it.
1: Yeah, I mean there certainly are more and more sort um, specialized vessels that are that are sold now um, for fermentation that will have an internal weight system. Um, you know they're going to be a little more expensive, but I think certainly worth it as far as um, the the time to just kind of keep things clean and, and feel safe about them. Um, but there always are. You know you can come up in your own kitchen um, with all sorts of really low tech solutions um, here. This right here is a container full of rocks. Um, And you can certainly, you know, find various containers of various sizes that will fit into other containers and rocks can easily be removed or added to add or lessen weight. Um, I use containers of rocks all the time, Um, much better than containers of water, which can leak. It's one of actually the questions that people ask all the time is they say, what are the rocks for? Uh, And rocks are heavy. And, um, you know, even something very simple like that. Um. Yeah. Oh, I lost my sound. Lost your sound. I lost my. David, sound. we can't.
0: We can't. muted. <laughs> Sorry, I muted myself because my fridge came on. There's the glass fermentation weights. Um, are great. You know the ones that you find on Amazon and they have a little handle and you can just throw them in the dishwasher. Fantastic. Don't get me wrong but I've been doing this since my days at Noma. Um, this is, you can see it keeping the pickles down. It's just like a plastic yogurt cup lid. The neck of the jar applies pressure. You just squeeze it in. It kind of expands once it's underneath the neck and those pickles aren't going anywhere. Um, and it's just something that I have in my kitchen anyway. Um, Alex, you're totally right. I usually double bag my water. If I'm not a huge fan of water, even though I wrote it into the Noma guide, but I'm like, hey, this is a hack that you can do. Um, especially because not a lot of people think about this, but when you have a bag of water, the water wants to be water and spill out, uh, and so it applies its pressure sideways on the jar on the walls of the jar. Um, so you don't always get as much downward pressure as you'd hope because sometimes the bag just kind of lodges itself, and it's like you know, like James Bond in, in a you know escape vent or something, kind of pressing up against the sides. Um, so yeah, rocks. And you can boil rocks. You can make rocks completely clean, and then just throw them in there, and it's fine. I mean, that's what people have been doing for hundreds, hundreds of years. Uh, you go to Japan, you go, so you, you see like pictures of like traditional miso factories. They just have a mountain of rocks on their miso, just a mountain. So yeah, if if you can, if you can, that's kind of the beauty of fermentation. If you can hack it and it works, then that's your method. There's no, there's no right way. Um, whatever whatever functions is the best thing to
3: do. Awesome. There's one more question. Actually, there's um, encouragement, Alex, for you to write a cookbook and share all your wisdom with everybody. Um, that's one comment. And then uh, another question about low salt ferments. Um, any advice for somebody who's on a low salt diet?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I tend to, you know, one can certainly use their ferment as the salty part of their meal, um, instead of using additional salt. Um, Doing a low salt ferment, um, you you just have to know that salt is so integral to the process, both of texture preservation and then the preservation of the product over time. Um, you know, if you want to make your, some quick pickles for yourself, say like a half sour pickle, you know, the reason it's a half sour pickle is because you're using less salt. And so it's souring a little faster. Um, and you, but it just won't be preserved as long. So something like that is a good thing to do at home. Um, but as far as the, you know, salt goes as a variable. Um, you know, it will preserve your product longer over time. um, And it will allow sort of the the progression of bacteria that will happen more slowly um, to give you sort of the greater um, flavor depth. Um, But you could certainly do sort of quick pickles that you're enjoying relatively um, quickly with, with lower salt at home.
2: Um, What are trends that you're really excited about in the fermentation space? What are kind of projects that you've seen that you've really enjoyed? And what are things that you think are not going to go anywhere that you've seen people
1: start to work on? I pay so little attention to what what goes on in the outside world. Um, Really, that's Kevin's job. Um, I'm so completely 100% in this world here. It's, it is, um, it's where it's where it's, it's, it's absolutely the air that I breathe. Um, and eventually, uh, the book it's, it's on the burner. Um, it's been on the burner for a long time. Um, various different books have been on the burner for a long time. Um, it's a time issue. Um, well, because really like we don't, we want to write it ourselves and we want to photograph it ourselves and we, we very much want it to be genuinely us. So it will happen at some point. I'm not gonna be able to keep up the sort of work schedule I have here forever. And so um, at some point, um, you know, the shop will morph into something else and we'll write and we'll perhaps consult and travel and do all the things that we don't have time to do now.
0: That's great. Um, I I personally, um, think that like every city should have a culture butcher shop. Not that like you should branch out and build an empire, but that every city should have a fermentary.
1: I agree. Um,
0: and and when you really think about like the origin of the fermentation and, and what its role was in traditional societies, um, you understand it's important. And even it's, you know, sure there's lots of cities and towns out there that have, you know, the the old school butcher, there's one in Copenhagen, like in near the Central Square, um, or the Fishmonger. Every town needs a fermentary as well. Um, you know, I I've, I've been to London and I got to see the London fermentary, and what she's doing over there is, is fantastic. And it like made my heart pang. And I'm like, why doesn't Copenhagen? Well, now one of my former interns started one in Copenhagen, so so that's kind of great as well. Um, but he's really focused on like Miso and stuff. But it's just to I think, I think Alex, that your, your sentiments that, you know, it's like, I love the line where you said, you know, when you consume ecosystems regularly and you make those ecosystems feed the ecosystem inside you, you start to see these changes and, 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 and um, you know, the, the real impact of, of, of fermentation and health um, including in your diet, making it a part of your food groups. Um, And I think the best way to do that is to when you're not able to do it yourself, have someone dedicated so if anyone is watching this in the, in the audience and you've been on the fence it's like maybe i should follow in our footsteps do it do it for the good of humanity <laughs> i would say um we've got just a couple minutes left alex do you have any closing thoughts um to, to round out your talk it's been such a pleasure uh having you with us and amazing to hear your story anything you want to <laughs> leave us with
1: Um, just, just, thank you. Um, it's, it's so interesting now that, um, you know, that fermentation is, is undergoing such a, uh, revival of interest because really for the majority of our careers, um, not many people paid attention. Um, we were totally, fairly irrelevant in both the sort of mainstream health world and also in sort of the mainstream culinary world. Um, we were kind of weird. And, um, and that's how I really have spent most of my professional career. Um, and so to actually have people, um, you know, pay attention, um, is amazing. Like it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's it's like like, uh, what I do hasn't changed that much. Um, but the lens through which people are seeing it has changed a lot. Um, and so, um, actually feeling relevant in the larger conversation, um, is, is amazing. And I feel fortunate to be a part of it. Great.
3: Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for being here and sharing that story. And, um, I'm thinking we'll have a lab field trip at some point to, to come you. Yeah. Okay.
0: Great. 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 Well, thank you. Everyone, uh, for, for joining along. Um, today, uh, we have, uh, who's next? Maya Hay is next? Maya Hay is next, yeah. And we're, we're working on finding a new date. She wasn't able to, to do the one that's in the calendar. So so stay tuned to that um, and hear all about her work. Um, Alex, thank you again. This is fantastic seeing the inside of your shop and your history. Uh, and thank you all for tuning in. We look forward to the next one. Thanks for keeping the series going, everyone. It's been a Great. pleasure. Yeah.
2: Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. Sorry.